From the American College of Cardiology, this is Dr. Kim Eagle, ACC.org Editor-in-Chief. With this week's Eagle's Eye View, this is your weekly cardiovascular update from ACC.org. Each week I try to review two or three articles that I find very interesting and potentially important for our clinical practice. Today I'm going to talk about two articles from the interventional space and then a recent article looking at atrial fibrillation after non-cardiac surgery. All three of these articles were published this past week in JAK. The first article is a study looking at the prognostic value of intravascular ultrasound in patients with coronary artery disease. Obviously, it's been an interesting debate whether further characterizing the coronaries in patients who are having coronary interventions or coronary studies using ultrasound or OCT adds value in terms of prognosis and then potentially therapy. So this study looked at 581 patients who underwent uh, grayscale and RF-IVUS of a non-culprit, non-stenetic coronary artery when they were going through coronary angiography for either stable angina or an acute coronary syndrome. And they analyzed the IVUS findings and compared patients who had adverse events versus those that did not. The all-cause events included things like death, non-fatal ACS, or unplanned revascularization over a median of about uh, five years. So of these 581 patients, 152, or roughly 26%, had an event. And when they looked at the IVUS results, the presence of a lesion with a minimal lumen area less than 4 millimeters squared was independently associated with uh, MACE, a hazard ratio being about 1.5. Contrary-wise, the presence of a thin cap fibroatheroma, or a lesion with a plaque burden greater than 70% on its own were not. And they showed that, however, each attenuated increase in segmental plaque burden was associated with an increased risk of the composite endpoint. So the authors concluded that plaque extent and burden on IVUS did predict cardiovascular outcomes during long-term follow-up, but that plaque composition did not. And I think in particular, the small luminal area seen on IVUS appeared to be the strongest independent predictor of what would happen over time. Obviously, our ability to carefully image coronaries, understand their composition, and identify potentially areas that are going to trigger future events continues to be the holy grail. And this study certainly suggests that the minimal lumen area and overall plaque burden at this point, are the best characterizers of that future risk. And whether or not this is of importance enough to uh, suggest doing it on a routine basis will await further trials. The second article is another article looking at complete versus culprit-only lesion intervention in patients who have ACS. And we've seen the argument go back and forth. Clinical trials, relatively modest numbers of patients Some have suggested that culprit-only intervention is better. Others have suggested that complete is better, and this continues to be a bit of a conundrum. This was a very interesting observational study of 37,000 patients who had NSTEMI at eight heart attack care centers in London, and they, they achieved this analysis by looking at the British Cardiac Intervention Society databases. They found a total of about 22,000 patients who had a non-STEMI and multivessel disease. The primary outcome was all-cause mortality at four years, 
And of course, as an observational study, they had to do uh, sophisticated statistical analysis of this, and they used a propensity score analysis to try to get at the possibility that in a non-randomized fashion, one doesn't want to uh, compare apples and oranges. So there were a total of 11,700 patients who had single-stage complete revascularization for non-STEMI. That number was seen to go up during the study, and that probably reflected the fact that several trials suggested that complete revascularization may add value. The patients who had a complete revascularization actually were older, more likely to be male, diabetic, have renal disease, and a previous MR compared to the culprit-only group. The crude in-hospital major adverse event rates were similar, around 5%. When the analysis actually did propensity matching between the two groups during the follow-up period, it did look like the complete revascularization group might do a little bit better. The five-year rate, about 22% versus 26%. So in this observational study, with fairly sophisticated statistical calisthenics being done, it did look like complete revascularization might be slightly better than culprit only. Obviously, the advantage of this is that it's a real-world analysis of a large number of patients with non-STEMI treated at a number of centers in London over 10 years. Of course, the disadvantage is no matter how much you try to model differences between groups using statistical technique, it remains to be a challenge. And we really need a large uh, randomized trial with hard endpoints to try to answer this question once and for all. So I thought it was an interesting additional piece of information for our interventional team as they think about culprit-only versus complete revascularization in non-STEMI. Uh, The last article I want to talk about is a paper that also came out in JAK. It looks at the risk of thromboembolism associated with atrial fibrillation after non-cardiac surgery. The authors used the Danish National Patient Registry, found about 6,000 patients who did not have a prior history of AFib, who were undergoing first-time non-cardiac surgery, who developed AFib during the index hospitalization. And they compared these on a one-to-four ratio based on age, gender, prior heart failure, prior thromboembolism, ischemic heart disease, to almost 4,000 patients who had prior non-avavular atrial fibrillation. So in the end, there were about 4,000 patients with post-op AFib and 15,000 patients with non-valvular known AFib who were compared. And of course, all these patients had very careful uh, follow-up in the Danish registry. The overall incidence of post-op AFib was low. It was less than half a percent, 0.4 percent. And the surgeries that it was most commonly seen after were thoracic, vascular, and abdominal surgery. Patients who had post-op AFib, 43 percent were men, 57 percent women. Median age was uh, 77. They tended to be older and have more multiple comorbidities compared to patients who did not develop AFib, which stands to reason. Patients with post-op AFib, only 24% were put on an anticoagulant compared to 42% of patients in the database who had non-valvular AFib. And at three years, the rate of rehospitalization was lower 
for patients who had post-op AFib compared to non-valvular AFib. But interestingly, their rate of thromboembolism was similar, about 13%. And oral anticoagulation was highly effective in reducing that endpoint among uh, both groups. Most notably, I guess, the patients with post-op AFib had significantly worse outcomes compared to patients undergoing surgery who did not develop post-op AFib. I think this is a very important observational study, and it suggests that post-op AFib confers a risk of thromboembolism, including stroke, which is very similar to non-valvular AFib, and it's mitigated by anticoagulation. The current guidelines tell us that the notion of starting an anticoagulant in this setting is a 2A recommendation. This study really calls to mind that maybe the recommendations should be stronger. And in a patient who has post-op AFib after non-cardiac surgery, the onus probably is on us to either initiate anticoagulation or screen for subsequent anticoagulation to identify those patients who are going to have AFib in order to mitigate this risk of stroke. So I thought this was an important article and certainly a problem that we see pretty often and is potentially an important problem for our patients. So I want to thank you for listening to Eagle's Eye View. This is your weekly cardiovascular update from acc.org, and you can find these three articles and the journal scans on the college's website. Also, look for a new educational catalog feature on acc.org. This is located under the Education and Meetings tab. Using that tool, you can sort your educational offerings by various formats, and many of them are free. Find us online or wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, I hope you have a great week. Thank you.